This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, our guest is Dr. Nahid Dosani, the founder of Palliative Care Education and Care for the Homeless, also known as the Peach Program which has inspired similar models around the world, including in the United States. Dr. Dosani is also one of the guest speakers at the Tech 10 online conference on December 10th, hosted by the NWELL Project. Register for free at nwellproject.org. It will be an amazing virtual experience. Dr. Dosani, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Could you give us a little background of where you grew up? Yeah, so... Hi, everyone. My name is Nahid Desani, and I'm a palliative care physician who was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. I'm the um, child of two uh, refugees uh, who came to Canada from Uganda in the 1970s uh, due to uh, war and and persecution and and genocide. Um, And so I grew up in a home brought up by you know, refugees. And so like, my upbringing was really focused around uh, community well-being, um, social justice and, and humanity, quite frankly. And this uh, really um, inspired me to always um, have a desire to want to, you know, make structural change and improve care for people who experience structural vulnerabilities like like poverty and, and homelessness in our communities. I was I went to medical school as a resident doctor. I came across, um, uh, I was working in a men's shelter providing healthcare and I met a, a man in his 30s who had a, a, a widespread head and neck cancer and um, I, um, he was experiencing homelessness. He had a longstanding mental illness. He uh, uh, was dealing with substance use and he couldn't get access to pain control. Mm. He was in pain crisis when I met him. And I tried to build a relationship with him. And I remember getting to the shelter the next day to try to care for him. And I couldn't find him anywhere. And I learned that he had died. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. Mm. And this one kind of experience for me was a real turning point that led me down a path that I guess leads me to this conversation with you guys, providing palliative care and 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 improving care for people experiencing vulnerabilities like homelessness. So homelessness is a serious issue in Toronto? Absolutely. Um, on any given uh, night in the city of Toronto, we know that there are 10,000 people or more who are experiencing homelessness in Canada. Uh, over 300,000 unique individuals experience homelessness each year, but that's all pre kind of COVID data. We know that COVID has created a situation that more and more people are experiencing homelessness than ever before. Canada has one of the most progressive definitions of homelessness in the world. We describe homelessness as a continuum. So definitely the person who lives on the street or in a shelter, but people who live in supportive housing and emergency housing, um, they meet the definition of homelessness. I don't know, you've heard of couch surfers as well. And what we know is that of the people we care for move along that spectrum quite a bit, and there that you can the people who live on the street are just as sick as those people who might be couch surfers or who have precarious housing. So it's a very real problem of 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 the social you know determinants of health. Well, I uh, I served a church in a suburban Chicago community, a rather uh, uh, 
significantly uh, uh, economic, good economic uh, situation. And at the church I was at, uh, the the janitor or the custodian and myself, we started a lunch program on a, on Saturdays because we were so very aware of all the homeless that were in our community. And you know, one of the things that happened was we we made it. We we let our neighbors in the community know that we were going to be making this lunch program, and we were actually threatened. That's the the thing that was very scary to me. And of course, we're going to be busing all these homeless from the city of Chicago, and so it's going to make an ugly situation. Realizing that they don't realize that just in their community there are so many homeless people, and I mean I've got so many stories I can tell you about what it is that goes on. But so my question is. Uh, what I mean, what is how do you how does Canada do it different than us as far as handling and helping the homeless, especially on the medical side? Yeah, you know, um, first of all, when I hear a story like that, thank you for your service and for thinking of people in your community. You know, have you guys heard of NIMBY? Uh, that the concept yep. of NIMBY, not, yep. my, not backyard. In my backyard, and, yeah. and that really comes to mind when I hear of your story. And it's unfortunately a common one in communities across North America, where there's a lot of stigma around this population. And I think if you surveyed 10 people in downtown Toronto today or in any city in North America, most people would say, oh, well, people who are homeless, they did it to themselves, right? You know, they're yes. to blame. Yes. Right? They made those decisions. They want to be in those positions. Well, I'll tell you, mm-hmm. as someone who provides healthcare for people experiencing homelessness, I've never met a, one person who wanted to be in the situation that they're in. And usually people are in these circumstances due to vulnerabilities that relate to um, trauma, that relate to poverty, um, intergenerational poverty and trauma, circumstances that are out of one's control. And so in many ways, those experiences are in Canada like they are in the United States and and, and Europe and Australia. I think one of the things that's different around healthcare for people experiencing homelessness is is we do have a publicly funded healthcare system Mm -hmm. in Canada that is delivered privately, actually. Um, That's actually actually a big misnomer. We're publicly funded, privately delivered. Mm -hmm. So um, we see a lot of the gaps around healthcare for people experiencing homelessness, and that's probably that we that we've seen in the states, and that's probably why people experiencing homelessness, their health profiles are the absolute worst of all demographics of all people across Canada. Life expectancy, if you're homeless, is 34 to 47 years old Ooh. compared to 77 to 82. Your mm-hmm. lifespan is cut by half if you experience homelessness in a country oh. like Canada or the United States. You know, um, I know we breeze quickly uh, about your parents being refugees. We have so much to learn from the refugee experience, and 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 we sometimes forget in our societies that refugees are humans, and 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 actually the resilience that people like you and my parents have shown is so so inspiring. They came to Canada with the clothes on their backs. I remember my mom saying that she had a ten dollar gift certificate from a grocery store that she was handed as a welcome to Canada, and it, I mean they're grateful to be Canadian and have the opportunity. My dad worked three jobs while going through school. Um, they both were graduated as accountants, and my dad worked for General Motors uh, for you know over forty years here in Oshawa, Ontario, and my my mom worked for Timex. And so I think a lot of the lessons that come out of that experience is 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 that you can have access access to um, healthcare, but what really makes you well is your community. So community well-being was a big part of it. Um, The idea that any one of us are one to two experiences, bad events, one to two paychecks away from being homeless or uh-huh. living in poverty. Um, we're, you know, the, the concept of cultural humility, in the in the idea that as we move forward, progress is 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 
is as important as the process we use to get there. And so having ethics, um, having an ethical approach to your everyday. And so, you know, I chose to take on medicine. And one of the big lessons for my parents was within healthcare and medicine, using an ethical, ethical uh, approach around equity to derive the work that I want to do. So process is important and, 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 and so is progress. And those two go together. I think those are three big lessons that came through. So it looks like you are raised with a sense of uh, social justice because your connection with that homeless man, I'm sure there are many experts that met that homeless man, but you had a deeper sense of connection, concern. And I oh, wanted to you. know how, how did that happen? What was it about yeah. that man that touched your humanity so deeply? Yeah. His name was Terry. And I carry Terry with me everywhere I go. He's literally in every talk I give because I always want to hold space for him and his and his experience and memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when, when I went downstairs at the shelter to see him, he was in pain crisis. He was writhing. He was curled into a ball. And as I looked in his eyes, I could see us a person who had experienced physical pain, obviously, mm-hmm. but the emotional pain of 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 not being recognized. Like I, I just got the sense in speaking with him, looking in his eyes, looking at his medical chart that he was he was going to the ERs, he was going to the walk-in clinics, he was presenting to hospitals. And even then he wasn't getting access to pain medicines that would improve his quality of life. And you wonder if it was had to do with stigma. You wonder if it had so. to do with uh-huh. the word, right? Uh-huh. The words he said, maybe the words he didn't say, maybe it was the way he smelled, but, but whatever it was, there was a human connection there. And that's what really drove me to him and his heart. And even in his, in his passing, um, he sticks with me in this work that we do together. I had a, a homeless gentleman who came into my office when I was in the church there. And uh, uh, I remember Sean, you talk about names. I remember right, Sean right. wherever I go. And Sean had a significant mental health issues. And he would come into the, after he was let, re, uh, let's say not removed, but he was let go from the mental health facility. He would come into our community. He would be staying in a YMCA because it was free that was paid by the government. He was only there for as long as he, as long as the money that there was given for that, because he was not having a job, couldn't get a job, uh, couldn't take, couldn't find the meds that he needed to keep his mental health under control. And you could see the cycle beginning and going. Uh, that one was one of those who led me to do the, 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 the lunch program because there's so many people out there with mental health issues as well as that. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm really dive, trying to dive in a little bit to hear about how more of your understanding of social justice issues, because that's very heavy and duty, heavy duty in my heart as well of taking care of the less than, and that comes, of course, comes from my faith. Yeah. And you know, that is such a key part of the work and and work like that is so essential. And that's why um, it's one thing to feel something in your heart. It's another to, you know, then take the step with colleagues to, 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 derive structural change. And that's why we started the PEACH program, which is a palliative, um, uh, stands for Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, a mobile street and shelter-based palliative care program that aims to provide palliative care for people experiencing homelessness in the city of Toronto. It started with um, myself and a street nurse, um, my colleague Namrak Ahmed, driving around 
out of the back of my Honda Civic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's now developed, you know, um, six years later into a 24-7 model of care, which features, you know, healthcare navigators, nursing coordinators, four palliative care physicians, peer workers, and integration within homing, uh, home care and the housing sector to, to, to reimagine how we can deliver healthcare. Because I do feel that charitable models of care are important. And it's it's actually so sad that we have to depend on charity for what are clearly structural deficiencies in our society. Mm. But any opportunity we have to change those structures, to change the social determinants of health and those structural determinants of health, that's what social justice to me really means. You spoke a little bit about stigma and that Terry might have experienced. And yes, homeless people uh, experience a lot of stigma. But for you to be able to mobilize people to look beyond, you know, uh, uh, to the humanity of the person suffering is, is really commendable. It's powerful stuff. I agree. And something we talk a lot about in this work is trauma. Um, and I know you guys talk a lot about that as well, for yes. sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, tra- and tra- our response to that is trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. The idea that really learning how to pronounce someone's name, learning about their preferred pronouns, sitting at a positional level where you're eye level to them. It's it's about really helping people heal, even if they are sick, really listening to them in a meaningful way. So when we offer treatments, we're not re-traumatizing people um, and further causing harm, for example. I look at how, how the, the homeless are challenged in our area. And there's got to be some sort of underground... Uh, communication tool that's going on for people to be able to get the the care that they need. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you don't go up and down the street looking for homeless and saying, hey, do you have cancer? Do you have cancer? I mean, how does that work? I think that's a, a great question. One of the ways that we do that is really work to build community. We're not we're not just calling the you know the Peach program a model of care. We we actually call it the Peach community, and mm. we do that in different ways. You know, at the outset, there was a lot of um, public work that we did through media and our own social channels to get the word out. We are integrated within an organization called the Inner City Health Associates in Toronto. I'm very grateful to that organization for housing the Peach program. So we're in integrated within a larger housing and health network. And in PEACH, palliative education and care for the homeless, the E stands even before C for a reason, education, even before care. Care is important too, mm. but we actually go out and educate. We um, we go out and do like one or two educational sessions for um, the homelessness sector, the health sector per week um, to actually mm. bring home these issues. And so that our referring partners feel that they're part of the movement with us. And our referrals come from healthcare for sure but around half of our referrals come from the social sectors they come yeah. from they come from spiritual care providers they come from social workers they come from housing outreach workers and we've trained them to de- derive what an appropriate you know client may be for a program like this so it's kind of through both and i think it's really creating a movement so people feel part of it yeah with that we'll take a little break and we'll be right back if someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. This is Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Dr. Dosani, um, 
What role has faith played in all this? You know, um, I probably wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't for faith and even my own um, spirituality. I identify as a Ismaili Shia Muslim myself and um, a big part of my upbringing in, in that spiritual and faith community is around social accountability and, and, and humanity um, as, a, as a construct, as, as it is in many faiths, for sure. Um, that drive within me has really, really instilled at an early age for me, um, allowed me to somewhat resist some of the temptations that come um, across the day-to-day, um, especially in a profession like medicine, where you can get really distracted very easily by tenure, um, uh, status, money, um, a whole host of distractions, right? Um, and I think I think that's how, um, how, how it helped um, me get where I am. And I think our team, we have a lot of faith, because if you don't have faith and you don't have hope and optimism, like I we always say like, what's the point? But our Peach team really derives a lot of faith in being part of a larger community that's focused on ending homelessness in Canada. And for those who are interested, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness is an organization that works at a national level to um, derive pathways and advocate and lobby government to work upstream so that we're not having to work downstream where we work mm-hmm. um, to help mm-hmm. people who are frankly dying and who are on the streets and through uh, housing pathways and a recovery for all pathway, for example. And I think that gives us faith. That gives us hope, right? Yes. Because we're, we're not just doing clinical work, we're doing activism work. Mm-hmm. And that to me plugs in. And our, our, I think many members of our team would probably say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how's it going with the activism? I mean, you're, you're, I, I suddenly heard your passion huge <laughs> talking about that so how's that going i think covid has been such an interesting time um covid hasn't just highlighted inequities in our communities mm. it's perpetuated them yep. i live in a community where um 83 of cases in toronto of covid cases have, have occurred in racialized communities meanwhile yep. racialized communities make up you know less than 50 percent of the community here low-income people uh, I work as the medical director for a local region, uh, re- regional government here in the Toronto area, um, for, uh, developing COVID program programming for people experiencing homelessness. Um, people are living in encampments and tents. We're seeing a disparity gap um, that is wider than ever, um, at least in recent history. And so um, the activism is more needed than ever before. If it was like a seven out of 10 on the, on the volume knob on, on my radio, <laughs> it's now at a 15 out of 10. <laughs> I can tell. But, but you know, what's really great guys is it seems to be resonating. And I, and I, and That's... it's, oh, it's, it's, it's always interesting, right? Um, I, I always say it's not the, it's not that we weren't talking about these things before we were talking about them. It's just that, that you guys are listening. You know, um, not, and I know this show talks about these issues a lot, but in terms of mainstream media, it's listening more than ever. So that's a reason to be hopeful that maybe these messages are resonating more than ever. What other kind of issues are you finding that you have to work around to make sure yourself, this thing is doing what it's supposed to be doing? I think plugging into the national um, discussion dialogue mm-hmm. around COVID and disparities has been very important for putting the issue we work with, palliative care for people experiencing homelessness, on the map, but also to derive that hope. And so some of our activism initiatives include, as I mentioned, working on ending homelessness as a concept in Canada, because this is a man-made problem through supporting the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and their six-step pathway for recovery for all. And encourage everyone to Google, Google that. The other is advocating for um, 
uh, to support the plight of people who use drugs in our communities mm. who have experienced trauma. We're experiencing in the province of Ontario, where I live, 45 people die or more are dying per week due to opioid overdose deaths. Mm. The pandemic has made this, this other pandemic even worse. And so more than ever, harm reduction approaches, safe supply approaches to supporting people who use drugs are, are very important. And then finally, something that I think will probably interest you and your listeners is addressing grief mm. among the teams mm -hmm. that we work within. Mm -hmm. There is a pandemic of COVID, but there's a pandemic of grief among our health workers and our social care providers who are working the front lines of the homelessness crisis and the COVID crisis and who's caring for them. Mm. And I think by taking some time and putting energy into that as a concept, we've been able to derive some meaning within the work as well. Mm. So who finances all this amazing program? You know, it's a, it's a good question, and it's probably a hodgepodge of funding that we've been able to creatively put together. Um, and so, you know, some of the medical care is pub is through public dollars, through our Canadian Medicare system. And, you know, when I speak to people in the United States, I always say that, you know, the PEACH program is the kind of intervention that could potentially be a benefit of, of a Medicare approach, albeit reminding listeners in the States, you know, Canada is typically a publicly funded healthcare system, but privately delivered, as opposed to other OECD countries that are publicly funded and publicly delivered. That said, um, our funding for our health navigator is actually philanthropic funding. Our peer support workers we've had over time, our grants, we have to leverage relationships through home care because that's not funded through us. We have to build relationships and we have over time and then other relationships with the housing the housing sector. So it's not a one uh, one funding approach that, that allows us to do the work. We're mm. creative and innovative with our relationships to achieve goals. Yeah. So how does your team uh, create trust? I know when I was homeless, uh, you live alone, you suffer alone so much that when somebody all of a sudden tries to show concern, you don't trust them. How does your team yeah. establish trust with these uh, wonderful yeah. people you're serving? And it goes without saying that we work with a very traumatized population. Um, and so um, contrary to what many people may think, um, at the outset, people are very open to connecting with us because they've never had someone kind of reach out and connect in this way. But as we start to build a relationship with them, um, we're spending a lot of time. We're trauma-informed in how we're communicating. We're sensitive. Um, we're flexible. And I, we've had clients say, okay, this is weird. Uh, what's the catch? This, this yes. can't be real. You know, I've never had a doctor sit with me for more than 20 minutes or I've yes, never had right, a nurse right. you know, speak to me this way, right? And we have to be there. There's no catch. Like we're, This is literally what we do. This is what we're supposed to do. And sometimes we have to come back multiple times <laughs> to, to show mm -hmm, that there's no mm -hmm. catch. And that's kind of been our experience. Um, and and so Sometimes we, you know, and this breaks my heart, we meet people who say, thanks, but I don't really feel that I deserve what you have to offer. I don't believe I deserve the peach model of care in my life. And that is really hard. Um, can, and it's hard for us. Can you imagine what it's like for someone who's experienced that? Um, so um, trust is a huge piece. And those are more of the common experiences that we have when trying to build trust. Mm. So there are people who are listening to this and maybe they're like, how can I start this in Chicago? What is your step-by-step -step guide to help uh, to start this kind of program? I think the first step in any community to address a social justice issue in healthcare like this is to, to uh, resist the temptation to act as a first step. And actually that first step needs to be to listen. 
to learn, learn, you know, go into your communities and learn about the traumas that have been experienced by our, you know, listen to indigenous communities, listen, you know, to communities who have experienced struggle, learn about anti-black racism and anti-indigenous racism, learn about what it's like for people who experience homelessness and, you know, where do they access services? Where do they go for food? Where do they go for social supports or healthcare? Once you've learned about those issues and those gaps, then seek to empower voices from the communities within which you serve. When we started the PEACH program, we actually um, supported and actually uh, uh, financially supported voices from the homelessness community, people who had lived experiences to guide us as to what the peach model should look like. You know, likewise, I would say, you know, seek out those voices and make them part of your teams. And then finally, as a third step, um, maybe not finally, but as a third step, build the relationships to be able to achieve success. There's not enough funding or support most in most places to be able to develop a siloed model of care in your own institution. You probably need to partner with a community health organization or a hospital or a homelessness organization or a social service agency to achieve success and probably all of the above, frankly. Right. Um, <laughs> I'd say those are three good steps to get you off and running and are often counterintuitive to the desire to just act. So was anybody just open to you when you approached them? I'm sure there's some resistance from those organizations. That's so, uh, that's a bang on question. And something I think back around is um, um, one of the things that was really interesting when, when, when Terry died is I realized to be taken more you know, seriously, I needed to pursue further training in palliative medicine. So I, you know, pursued the palliative medicine residency at the University of Toronto. And I, and I, when I applied, I said, listen, this is what I'm going to do when I graduate. And I, I, whether if you, if you, if you don't let me in, I'm going to do it. And if you let me in, I'm still going to do it. So please mm -hmm. let me in. So, <laughs> so the best care can be provided. And during that year, I reached out to colleagues uh, around the world, um, uh, experts in um, homelessness and healthcare, experts in spiritual care, experts in um, palliative care. And I heard two things. I heard um, that we, this, is a this is a model that's needed. We need to improve palliative care for people who, who you know, live on the margins of society. And, and there just aren't models to do that. And so I set out to, you know, pitch this to various organizations. Um, and the one organization that really took me on was Inner City Health Associates in downtown Toronto and kind of said, we kind of understand what, you're, what you want to do. We'll give you a year to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And in that year, we cared for 42 people through the PEACH programs, humble beginnings. Um, and guess what? 64% of people never went to the hospital or ER. 80% of people died where they wanted to, and 83% were reconnected to family or friends. Three metrics that we aim to track. And six years later, yeah, the rest is kind of history. Amazing stuff. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe of what you... How do you have so much energy? <laughs> oh, you're very that, kind. <laughs> but I mean, it, you're, I know that you had to walk into some places where the door was slammed in your face, and then you had to go and find somewhere else to go, and somebody who would try and listen to you. That's uh, it's incredible what you've done. Thank you. I, I think sometimes the the that definitely happened, by the way, a lot of closed doors. But yeah. um, what's interesting is five years later, the, the, those very same organizations are, are now reaching out to us for education and training. And uh -huh. I think sometimes, and you you both know this really well, I know you know this, um, 
better than I do, the status quo in healthcare and in our social service systems is sometimes just the easier way and in the path of least resistance. And it's very challenging to to be disruptive in healthcare. And this was a disruptive platform. It was, it disrupted the way we provided care for people experiencing homelessness. And it also disrupted the notion of palliative care and actually melded two extremely sad (laughs) and Uh difficult topics and complex topics together. And that was really challenging for people. But I encourage people at home to to, to, to try to resist the temptation to stay in your lane, to try to resist the temptation to maintain the status quo. Your voice is needed to disrupt these systems. Only then will we achieve health equity. We'll be right back after this break. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. This is Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Dr. Dosani. Uh, you've accomplished uh, so much. Uh, I'm sure you've gone through some challenges, but as we see you now, as we talk to you now, you're someone who's done it all. How do you, um, what is your philosophy of life and what what helps you to stay humble and to stay hungry and to stay fighting? Um, I think, I think, I think about the question, a few questions that it really boils down to. What's a life worth? How do we value dignity in life? How do we value dignity at the end of life? Are our lives actually worth the same? Is my life worth as much as as your lives? Are your lives worth as much as Terry's life? Um, um, I'd like to think that all of our lives are actually worth the same, but it's very clear that we live differently because of the differences in our social determinants of health. But should we die differently? And, and, and I strongly feel that if we can't get the part about the dying right, then I'm not sure how successful we're going to be going upstream to deal with all the rest. Um, and so to me, that is a key question in, in, in what a human life is worth is what really drives me every single day. Like I said before, there's a lot of distractions there's, and there's, there, there have been around the care and, and, and opportunities that arise. But if you always go back to the person who you care for in front of you and you, and you recognize in a trauma-informed care the vulnerabilities that they experience, your, your, your next step will never um, be the wrong step. That will be your gut instinct. If, if you put that person at the forefront, then you'll never lose sight of what the mm. path needs. You've... I'm sure have been out there and in the in the midst of everything. Where do pay? Well, how do patients come along and and uh, and find your services? Yes. Um, so many of the people we care for um, present to emergency departments, for example, or hospitals, uh-huh. and we built relationships with our healthcare providers uh, who work in community, and they love the Peach program because of the work we do, and they're awesome and they support us. But also, it provides like an extra layer of support for people who work in hospital, who then see people often represent to the emergency department, and hospital. It's like a disposition opportunity, right? And so, uh-huh. you know, we get a lot of referrals that way. But we're really proud that over half of our referrals actually come from 
non-healthcare workers. We've sat with housing workers, outreach workers, case workers to teach them about what a palliative approach to care can mean for someone experiencing homelessness. And we receive referrals that way. They're not often medical like descriptions. They're maybe just general descriptions and we do the rest of the work to figure that out. And that's how we've expanded our network because why should it be like a medical person who refers someone to palliative mm-hmm. care? Mm-hmm. You know, as much as I do, that palliative care is a holistic approach, which emphasizes spiritual care, um, everything, uh, well-being, yep. everything, right? right? So why can't the community members or other social service providers um, provide those referrals? And so when I talk about the community and the movement that that is that surrounds the PEACH program, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Also, when people refer to your program, it's really important to like then feedback, right? So we try to bring the referrers back and say through an email or a phone call, even a month down the road or six months later, hey, you 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 referred so-and-so to us who was dealing with metastatic cancer and needed housing. I want you to know he got housing and he ended up dying in that unit and that was his goal and he had mm. his you know, friends around him and that was success and that that derives some meaning as well. It's a very fair uh, question. It's really part of that, that community feel. Yeah. I'm so impressed with your discussion about community and you have developed such a, an integrated community there in, in Toronto. Uh, that goes again with your faith and your understanding of what it means to be uh, part of this world, I mean, in a Mm -hmm. spiritual sense. You found that at home, you said? Yeah, through through my parents and their and their up and my upbringing, you know, um, I think that was a huge part of it. Um, But um, uh, it's also through role modeling, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly. You know, and, and, and for people listening at home, no matter what sector you're coming at this from, I think thinking about role modeling is really important. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly just inspired by being part of a network of, of health workers who are working on the front lines of the homelessness crisis. And when I'm, when I'm dealing with a complex ethical issue or um, struggling about a next step, I, I often derive meaning from conversations with mentors who work in research, frontline clinical care, spiritual care, um, chaplaincy, um, nursing. Um, uh, and I, I always say it's okay to have multiple mentors. It's mm-hmm. okay to have multiple uh-huh. role models because uh, different people can serve different purposes in different spheres, right? Yes. For you. Um, um, so yeah, my parents and the various role models in different sectors for sure. And now you guys established an hospice to care for the homeless. That's right. Yeah. How is that, so, how is that going? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, spent three years developing Toronto's first um, hospice for people experiencing homelessness, and was really uh, a real pleasure to be a part of that project. And um, and and since establishing that, I've, I've now moved towards building the Peach program, which started our mobile program, which was aimed to start you know to care for just like forty to fifty people before the pandemic, and has doubled in size. We have between one hundred and one hundred ten people on caseload at any given time um, uh, through the Peach program. Um, because the needs are are more than ever before, and hopefully engaging in conversations like this across the country, continent, and the world, so that models like this mm-hmm. can start to develop, and we can rethink, reimagine how we do community care and community palliative care. Uh, part before you go, part of the reason you're here is also uh, you'll be one of the guest speakers at the NWL, uh, con- the Tech Ten Conference organized by the NWL Project. What you, right. what will you be talking about? Talk to our <laughs> listeners. 
First of all, I had to pinch myself when I actually got the email when I was asked to be part of this. And I, I, it's an honor to be there and, and to be able to speak with you guys about it today. Um, I mean, like Atul Gawande, Andy Cohen, Soledad O'Brien, Taraji Henson, um, Blair Underwood, so on and so forth. I mean, it's surreal. I was actually supposed to go to LA to speak for it this year, but because of COVID, it's turned into a virtual event. Um, but it's, um, it, it, it looks pretty awesome. Take 10 is an event run by Enwell, which is an organization in the United States um, that's international that works on um, destigmatizing death and dying and serious illness conversations and providing advocacy around palliative care. Take 10 occurs December 10th, 2020. It's an online event. I'll be speaking about um, what a human life is worth. And I'll be talking a bit about Terry's story uh, in a little bit more detail and um, how palliative care is a human rights and social justice issue and is the perfect intersection between hum humanity, spirituality, healthcare, um, and social justice. And so I encourage everyone um, to join. Just Google NWELL, take 10, and um, I register. It's a free event, so you can yes. watch it that day and watch it after as well. I know we'll be there. Thank you very much, yeah, Doctor. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Nahid Dosani, the founder of Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, also known as the Pitch Program in Toronto, Canada. Thank you for listening. If you have loved our podcast and the free resources we offer on our website, consider making a tax-deductible donation to support the work of hospice chaplaincy. A donation of any amount will be helpful. Make your donation at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Thank you.